Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and... Okay, Jem, that was wrong again. What's that, Greg? We're going to stay in the booth for as long as it takes. Let's get this right. Do you know what? I've had enough of this. Come on, Jem, you're not just letting me down, you're letting yourself down. That's it. I'm on strike. I'm not angry, Jem, I'm just disappointed. Come on, let's get it right. Not kidding, Greg. I'm not. Going with you and you. Yup, this time round we're talking about strike action, talking about unions, and all of this is of course wrapped around the fascinating topic of the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, and the SAG-AFTRA, two unions in America right now striking, affecting all of pop culture basically, in the whole of America, and oh my goodness this is an interesting topic, but I'm going to put it out here. As soon as I start talking about, well, <laughs> the two things happen when you start talking about labor laws and unionization is one, most people, most normal everyday people glaze over and start falling asleep. Okay, I promise you it'll be interesting, okay? I absolutely promise this is not going to be a dull lecture on socialism or something like that, right? And secondly, the thing that happens is people really reveal their political point of view because fundamentally the idea of collectivization of resources or the idea of like I said sort of like a, a socialist or even communist concepts as well collective bargaining all this kind of stuff if you're pro it you're going to be left-wing and if you're anti it you're going to be right-wing so what I'm really hoping to do today is to give you the point of view from both sides so Look, if you are very left-wing, maybe this is another way of looking at things. And also, if you're skew right-wing, maybe you'll sit there and go, huh, okay, when you put it like that, there's a reasonable argument there. So, this is, oh, this is going to be great. The thing is, when people strike, they stop doing their job. The more common strikes in modern society are things like train strikes, or maybe some kind of utility strikes, like refuse collection, garbage collection. And that obviously is pretty noticeable. But the weird thing about writers and actors striking is you're not going to notice for a while because everything takes time to write and film 
and edit. And so basically 2023 isn't affected at all. And most of 2024 is kind of okay too. But there is going to be some things you're going to start noticing depending on how long the strike goes on for. And I'll give you some examples of where you probably accidentally noticed it in the past. So a lot going on here. Promise lots of pop culture honest going on here too. And so let's start with the first strike. The first recorded time where workers decided to put down their tools and refuse to actually do what they were sort of paid to do. And interestingly, it's probably older than you think it is. So when do you think it is? The idea of unions and labour collectivization that's very much associated with the industrial world. And industrialization happened starting in mainly the 1800s. So was it the 1800s? Maybe a little bit before the 1700s, something like that? The answer is, you're way off. I was surprised when I did this research, which I hasten to add, I did this research years ago for either an article or a book, I can't quite remember now. But when I looked into it, it's like, huh, okay, that changes my view on ancient Egypt. It's in the 1200s BC. So we're talking about 3,200 years ago, give or take. Long time. And it's linked to a specific site, Deir al-Medina. And this was at the time of Ramesses III. Not the famous Ramesses, that was the second. This happened a few generations later. And what was happening at Deir al-Medina is it was a necropolis. What does that mean? It's a site where there are lots of tombs. And if there's one thing you know about ancient Egyptians, they love their tombs and their places to place the dead and the mummies and all that good stuff. For the record, things like the pyramids were already a thousand years old at this time and nobody was being buried in pyramids. There's now the Valley of the Kings, Tutankhamun, Valley of the Kings, not in a pyramid. So... What was going on is the artisans that were actually creating all of these tombs. So we're talking about skilled craftspeople, artists, stoneworkers, etc. They were fed up with the quality of their rations, which was part of their payment. And so together they decided to literally lay down their tools and stop working. So what do you think happened next? There's one thing you know about pharaohs is they are autocratic dictators, the sorts of people who shunned the Jews. Although that never actually happened. There's no actual historical evidence. That seems to be just a made-up story in the Old Testament. Shh. So what do you think happened? And the remarkable answer is Ramesses III listened to their complaints and upped their ration quota. And once they got that, they went back to work and you could say that Ramesses got a good deal because over 3,000 years later, Deir el-Medina is an amazing complex of tombs that still exists today, more than 3,000 years later. So it's fair to say, for those rations, they got their money's worth. So there you go. There's an example of the purest form of this. The problem is, why are there unions? Why is there this group worker reaction 
And the answer is simple, because if I don't like things on my own, I can't get anything done. So I need to have some friends, some allies going on. And if we all, all these little people combined, can cause so much trouble that the management, in this case a pharaoh, has to kind of listen to them. Because the only other option is, let's say Ramesses III did decide to kill them all, or torture them horribly, well they're probably not going to do as good a job as before all of that. So there needs to be talks. It's very fragmentary information. I've given you everything that is actually in the historical record. Everything else is conjecture. Was there negotiation? Was there a back and forth? Unknown. This is a long time ago, after all. Then we've got the term strike, which I don't know about you, but strike action, I assumed, well, you know, people are angry, so this is probably to do with punching. Maybe this is a reference to some kind of riot that happened in the industrial era or something like that. And actually, no, it's to do with sailing, because in 1768, in Britain, a group of sailors struck or remove the top sails of merchant ships. If you remove the top sail of a ship, for a number of reasons, it's hard to therefore get out of harbour. You need as much sail as possible for that manoeuvring because you're travelling relatively slow in a relatively built-up area. You would also take it off during a storm because you don't want it to just be torn down by the storm. So striking the top sails or any of the sails is a legitimate maritime term and it means, quite literally, to remove. So if we are striking, we are removing ourselves from the workplace. So actually, it isn't as sexy or as dangerous as it first sounds. And therefore, technically, anything pre-1768, any kind of mass protest can't be called a strike because that term hadn't actually been invented yet. Which is one of the reasons why I do this podcast, because when I find this stuff out, I just naturally feel like, ooh, I can't wait to share this with you. So there we go. Now, the other thing going back, so this is in the first millennium BC, so two and a half, three thousand years ago, there or thereabout, in the Talmud, which is the holy book for the Jews and is basically the Old Testament as well, there is a specific reference to the bakers going on strike. This was a big deal because these particular bakers were actually providing the unleavened bread for the ceremonies at the temple. So this was an incredibly important, noteworthy religious moment that ties in, obviously, to the whole point of things like the scriptures and teachings in the Talmud. But it's telling us that, again, there were times when people had basically had enough in these situations. Then we can move on to the Romans, where we have the plebeians, you pleb. Now, what pleb meant was a working man who was able to vote at the Senate, was a Roman citizen. They weren't the aristocrats. They were, it's tempting to think of the great unwashed, but of course, underneath them, there was the slaves and also the women. Sorry about that. So the plebs were the lowest class of enfranchised people in the political system in Rome, but there were times when they felt that not only the senators, but also at times the emperors as well, were basically pushing their luck too much, that there were a time when the rules aren't being applied, and this is just fundamentally unfair, so 
there were uprisings. Now, a lot of these pre-industrial ones, if they get written down, it turns into violence, a riot. Somebody feels that they're politically hard done by, or the system doesn't work, and they rally around some people, and then chaos ensues. So it isn't really, like I said, we, we know so little about that ancient Egyptian version, and we can't say if there's any violence with it. The chances are that because it was done peacefully, and it is the earliest one recorded, chances are, because it was resolved peacefully, it probably, the protests were peaceful. But you never know in these situations. However, we need to get into the 1800s and industrialization where workers are living and working cheek by jowl in these situations. Now, to talk about trade unions, which for the record, trade union is the term in Britain, labor union is the term in America, same thing. Hopefully this makes sense to anybody who doesn't speak English. So let's talk about trade union, but previously trade guild. Because you have this era, particularly in the medieval times, of people coming together of the same craft. So you would have things like the Glassmakers Guild, particularly in somewhere like Venice. You would have the Woolmaker or Textile Guild, probably that's going to be in London, and so on and so forth. All these people together, the stonemasons collecting together, eventually leading to the Masonic lodges and all that kind of stuff, but that's not really linked to trade unionism. So you get this idea already, thousand years ago, one and a half thousand years ago, of people realizing we need to group together because as a group we can get more done than just me on my own. But of course, in the case of a guild, I might well be competing against you. If we're both making fine wool cloth textiles, well, are you going to go to me or are you going to go to the other guy? Because maybe their quality is slightly better. Maybe their price is slightly lower. Maybe the way that they dye the wool is more vibrant. So you are actually my competitor, but there are times when we might want to work together so we can overall agree a price or something like that. That is where the idea of unionization came from. But the critical thing in Britain, and we do have to look at Britain as the main focal point of this, because the Industrial Revolution started in Britain and then spread throughout the rest of the world. Different countries had it at different times and did it in slightly different ways. But the whole idea of, in particular, the unionization of things comes from the 1830s and the Chartists which is one of these classic examples. I've said this before, and actually I can make it political again. If you look at history as the slow changing of society or something like agrarian reform, these are the things that actually change society. If you look at things from the point of view of a king or emperor and how they did in pivotal battles, that could also change the landscape, but it's actually far less likely to do so. And also to the common man, is far less likely to change their lives. So, for example, you've got something like the Battle of Crecy in 1346, crushing defeat for France, one of the key victories for England in the period of fighting between those two nations, later on known as the Hundred Years' War, made no difference to your average, let's say, sheep farmer in Oxfordshire at that time. They might at some point have been told, but big whoop doesn't really affect me. Two years later, however, when 
the Black Death sweeps through England, oh boy, did that affect that pig farmer in Oxfordshire. So the idea of the gradual change of societal evolution, that's actually considered left-wing history. And this idea of the great man theory, in inverted commas, of somebody like, you know, let's pick a Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or Napoleon. These people did change things. But how much of it was actually down to just them? How much of it was society changing anyway? Were they riding a wave? Did they create that wave? Whole debate there. Right-wing history right there at ya. So if we're talking about the Chartists, this is something which would get a left-wing historian really het up. Now, the thing is, if you want to argue that social history makes more impact to more people over a longer period of time, you're right. Just, you are right. There's no argument there. However, if you want to say, it's really boring compared to the battles and the misbehaving kings and things like that, you're also right. So I tend to talk about the big stuff. If you like, this is going to be one of the most intellectual episodes, but I promise I'll try and keep it snappy with you guys. I'm going to come up with some violence in a little bit. Please bear with me. And like I say, we'll actually, if you like, this time around, I'm doing it the other way around. I'm showing you how your pop culture is being affected by a system that's been in place for about 200 years, although the idea goes back over 3,000 years. So, the Chartists. These were basically a group of people which we would now call left-leaning. The concept didn't even exist in the 1830s, and it hangs on what's known as the People's Charter of 1838. The Chartists themselves were around from 1838 to 1857. This was the first ever working-class movement that could gather together millions of signatures as petitions to Parliament, in essence changing the effects and impact to the working classes. Now, if we want to go back a few hundred years into the 1500s, at that point, being a peasant tied to the land, villainy, as it's called, interesting that we now use that word meaning something bad, and indeed, in the Victorian era, this idea of being poor and being potentially a thief or a lawbreaker is interchangeable. Sad to say, again, terrible bit of social history for you there. But that break happened in the 1500s, right in the middle of the Tudor era. If it wasn't Henry VIII, it probably was Mary. But at some point in there, think off the top of my head, it's 1547, please don't quote me on that, but you get the idea. The actual idea of you being a peasant tied to the land had not existed in Britain for nearly 300 years by the time you get the time of the Chartists. However, by comparison, in let's say, Imperial Russia, that idea of a peasant tied to the land still hadn't gone away by the 1840s. That would happen later on in the 19th century. So there were a lot of disenfranchised people around the world. Now, in the middle of all of this, you have this German guy called Karl Marx, who in 1848, right in the middle of the Chartist movement, he writes the Communist Manifesto, which was written in Manchester. And when he talks about the yearning and the discontent of the working class peoples, we now tend to assume, because Marxism, communism, Leninism, all those sorts of things are interchangeable. In fact, a lot of people think Karl Marx is actually Russian. People tend to think he was writing about Russia. No, he wasn't. 
Russia was an incredibly backwards agrarian country that still had at the time, like I said, peasants tied to the land. He was talking about the British workers. And so this idea of communism was linked with this increasing movement of the Chartists. And I'm not saying the Chartists were communists, not by any means, but all of this is creating a heady brew. And now we get the foundation of, at first, the textile unions in the 1830s. Britain led the world in textile production. Wool, cotton, by using machines being turned into fabric. So the weird thing is Egyptian cotton. Cotton comes from Egypt originally. Hang on, weren't the slaves pecking it in the Americas? Yeah, that's a part of the Colombian exchange. So cotton came from Europe into or North Africa, technically, into the Americas. And then they got slaves to work on it. But actual manufacturing, the weird thing was, you could grow the stuff in Egypt, you could put it on a ship, send it to Britain, then get it rapidly woven in a machine. Now it's a cotton sheet and then sent back to Egypt, and that was cheaper doing that round trip than just actually sewing it and, and weaving it in Egypt. That's why industrialization exists. When you look at the world around you, the, the house you live in, the, the things that you have, you wouldn't have nearly as much of this stuff if it wasn't for industry, which I know is a dirty word now, and actually we're going to come into that a little bit again. But the first type of unionization was the textiles, because this was the engine room, almost literally, of the Industrial Revolution. And one of the things that was making Britain fabulously wealthy, which is pretty boring to say because it's textiles and it's a union, but there we go. What's interesting, though, is the first Trade Union Legalization Act wasn't until 1872. So you've got give or take 35 years, so a generation and a half where unions, the government could act against them because they were acting illegally. But you could see, starting with the Chartists and eventually finishing up with the legalization in 1872, that this was all going in one direction. And the problem was that if the workers stopped, that meant that these rich industrialists stopped making money. So there was a tension there. There was people power, Kratos, democracy. All of this worked quite well together. In amongst all of this, we have... Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Liberal Party of Great Britain. In the past, there was the Tories, nowadays called the Conservatives, and there were the Whigs, spelt with an H, so it's W-H-I-G, and they were less landed gentry. In modern parlance, the Whigs of the 1700s we might call liberals today, but they were actually became the Liberal Party in 1867. So we've now got this group of politically motivated people who are starting to, and with the Liberal Party in the 1860s, 70s and 80s, they were the only political party in Britain that recognised the unions. That wasn't enough for the union movement. And in 1895, we get the Independent Labour Party. And in 1895, that's the first time during an election they actually put out some actual candidates. There were more than two dozen of them, and they all failed to get their positions. So that's hardly surprising, new party, etc. But it was a start. So we're seeing how, if you like, at the beginning of the 1800s, there aren't even any unions. There's the occasional strike, but that's about it. But by the end of the 1800s, there's now an actual political party campaigning, putting out leaflets and things like that for the union members. A huge change in a hundred years. And it became known as the Labour Party for the Americans, that's L-A-B-O-U-R, the Labour Party in 1906. So the Labour Party, if you've ever wondered, why is the Labour Party automatically connected with the unions and even today in the 2020s why does the Labour Party have a block vote for the unions it's because they were born out of them they kind of owe the unions their own existence but as Britain changed in the 20th century unionization collectivization industrialization changed quite dramatically so the high point I guess is round about 1900 we got this new party and they're really pushing things. But by the end of the 20th century, by the end of the 1900s, huge tracts of the working class are no longer members of various unions. And indeed, admittedly in 1997, we get the Labour Party coming in after nearly 20 years of conservative right-wing governance. We get Tony Blair at the head of what he referred to as New Labour, and he had to spend years courting the media and the industry titans, if you like, saying, look, I'm not as radical as these other people, but we're all bored of the Conservative Party, so give us a try. And because of that, now fast forwarding again a generation later, he left being Prime Minister. He wasn't ousted. He chose to leave in 2007 which turned out to be brilliant because then there's the economic crisis in 2008 perfect timing there tony however he had started he had joined george w bush in the war in iraq which got 
Britain very hot under the collar. But because of the Iraq war, the moving away from the unions, all of this has led to, in the 2020s, a lot of people looking back at Tony Blair and saying he wasn't really Labour. He doesn't count. And yet he is the only Labour leader to have won three elections in a row. And his reward is he now doesn't count. Interesting that. Again, if, if we're in relatively recent times, you're probably going to have opinions, if you're British, on Tony Blair. I'm stating the facts here, OK? I'm not saying that I personally thought he was good or bad. I'm not going to tell you if I voted for his party one way or the other. But the point is, there can be no doubt. If you win elections, that's kind of the point, political point. But if you didn't win them in quite the right way, you get being shunned at. There's this concept on the left of a purity loop which is basically, it's better to lose but be right, morally right, than to win and have compromised yourself in some way. What you may think of that will tell you how left-wing you are. Personally, I'm going to say the whole point of politics is to win. Get in, and then you can start changing things your way, rather than sitting at the sidelines going, oh, I would have done it so much better, but having no actual power to do anything. That's going to be about as political as I'll get on that. So I've sort of taken you through the way that, and it's a similar thing, a few decades behind basically in America, but the movement is the same. Initially there are no unions, there is no industrialization, things start getting industrialized, there are actually unions being formed, initially there can be some, some extreme violence against them, and the, the workers managed to organize themselves well enough to, to move forward. Now, I mentioned Marx there. Communism, Marxism, socialism. Ooh, all the isms there. Communism, let's start there. The actual technical definition of communism is people living together in a group, working together for the greater good, sharing resources. Nobody in particular is in charge or has an advantage, everybody shares equally in a collective group called a commune. And I will never forget being at university reading a brilliant paper which was simply titled All Cavemen Were Communists. Because in the literal word of what I've described, that's a family unit in the hunter-gatherer era, the Mesolithic era of the Stone Age, when you have a few family groups living together and the men will go out and let's say hunt a woolly mammoth and then that meat will feed everybody even including the people who weren't involved in the hunt the women and children can go off and scavenge berries and things like that so the men are bringing back the protein the women and children are bringing back the vitamins at night time perhaps there's some guards and, and some torches to protect yourself from wild animals and so on and so forth everybody's working together for the greater good so yeah they were communist. Now, obviously, the joke here is that phrase was invented 9,000 years later and is completely anachronistic, but it, it pricks up your ears and gets you to think about it in a different way. And basically, as soon as we get sedentary civilization, the invention of towns and cities, when people have to start specializing, that's when communism falls to pieces. And if you're also turning around to me and saying, a gem. Look at the Soviet Union, it lasted 70 years. It didn't work very well. People are very, very harsh on capitalism, which is the opposite of socialism and co communism. The thing is, like all of these things, if you have a pure version, an extreme version, if you like, it always fails. 
If capitalists are only worried about money, there will be no services. You'll very rapidly get anarchy. Legal system doesn't work. Of course, that is terrible and awful and bad. But then again, if the government owns everything and you have to wait for the government to feed you and they're in charge of everything, well, that's pretty inefficient. And if you look at the Soviet Union, it had a huge population. It was relatively industrialized, but it put money in certain prestige projects, like the space race, for example. But your average Soviet citizen in, let's say, 1985 had far less of everything, including fun, compared to an American in 1985. At the time of Ronald Reagan, peak Reaganomics, that kind of stuff. More Ronald Reagan in a surprising way, in a bit. But what you can see there is, yes, I don't want communism and I don't want a completely unregistered, unrestrained capitalist market either. The solution is probably somewhere in the middle. And socialism, if you like, is a less extreme version of communism, where there is a need for government to centralize and work on these things and provide basic services, basic care to oversee things like the capitalist markets. But how much of that? Well, that's the debate. How much you feel that the government should work with your life restrictions and choices tells you how left-wing you are. The more you think that that should be there, then actually the more left-wing you are and the more freedom of spirit. And this is where liberals and, and something like Labour will start rubbing against each other and actually say, I uh, kind of disagree with that. So all of this is going on and unionization, as I said, has definitely is definitely past its peak, but unions are still alive and well in the 21st century. But here's the thing. If you've ever heard the term paying your dues, that is a union term because... That's the old-fashioned name now, admittedly. For every month, you needed to pay a bit of your work money to the union. So that when the union decided to vote, and that's what they do, they don't arbitrarily say, let's have a strike. They ask all the members, let's vote for it. Do you think we should strike or not? Is this a big enough deal for us to potentially strike? It took me years to work out that when a strike action happens, you don't get paid for the days you're striking. And this is the tension going on right now with the Writers Guild and the actors, etc. More on that coming up very, very soon. Honestly, yes, I promise. So the question is, how long can the workers hold their breath and how long can the, can the company hold its breath as well? So that's the, the tension going on there. But the point is, if I'm paying my dues, I expect my union representative to fight for my rights. And here's the thing that, again, I think a lot of people don't quite understand. The union is not there to win political capital. The union is not there to do what's best for society. The union only exists to get the members what they think is fair. So there can be times when unions feel like they have the management over a barrel and will potentially keep striking, keep striking as they demand better and better results in these situations. Now, here's a tough one for you to think about. Now, I'm going to do this again as neutrally as possible. I guarantee if you're British and you're, let's say, 45 or older, you're going to have opinions on this, but hopefully you'll recognize I'm explaining this, showing both sides of the arguments. In the 1980s in Britain, you had Arthur Scargill, who represented all of the coal miners' unions in Britain, going head-to-head -head against Margaret Thatcher, the right-wing prime minister of Britain. 
and there were huge strikes with all the coal mines. And basically this was a demand for higher pay, better, more modernization of the coal mines, etc. And Thatcher's government were basically saying, no, it is currently cheaper to dig coal out of China and ship it to Britain than to dig it out of Britain and sell it to ourselves, which was factually accurate for the record. But here's the thing in the 21st century, hearing people arguing about coal when we're worried about environmentalism, etc., coal clearly isn't the future. The thing that there can be no doubt about is when Thatcher shut down some of these coal mines, the entire village or town depended on that mine. So if you're going to shut it down, because we're argument saying that this is environmentally unsound, which is actually true, wasn't the argument used at the time, but nowadays people are shutting down mines for those sorts of reasons. The problem is, if everybody's dependent on that, you have to give them something else. And that's something that the Conservative government definitely did not do. But at the same time, there can be no doubt that, looking long term, more and more coal is not the solution to Britain's issues. So, let's go to those writers and actors. Because this is an example where they have some good points and they have some less good points. So you can make some decisions on this. So, for example... The writers are worried about ChatGPT and AI, and basically they're saying, you can't do anything if you don't have a script, which is absolutely true. Now, the last time you had both the actors and the writers striking together in America was in 1960. And do you know who was the head of the writers' union at that point? This might surprise you. Ronald Reagan, who at the time was a Democrat, showing that the man had changed his views over his lifetime. I know, unusual. So the Writers Guild of America are basically saying, let's say the year is 1998, and I have written an episode of Friends. So that was a long time ago, but you get paid royalties. Every time Friends is on again, I get a little bit of money, not as much as the first time round, but I get extra payments. These are called residuals. The problem is, if I'm writing for Netflix, it goes on to Netflix and it never goes anywhere else. And they don't pay residuals because it's a streaming service, not a TV company. So I get one payment and one payment only. So the argument here is, hang on, can we not do this in a different way? Because actually I'm being paid less to do Netflix stuff. Netflix stuff's pretty expensive. So where's my part of the money seeing you can't do anything without a writer? Pretty good argument. And also, Stop using AI because that's not as good as a human being. Also valid point. And also AI doesn't do anything except scrape stuff from other places, so you're probably recycling my stuff anyway. All of this absolutely valid there. In the case of the actors, again, problem with AI. There was an offer saying, we will scan your face and record your voice once and pay you for that, and we'll only ever pay you for that. So we can then use your likeness and voice for all of perpetuity, and of course with AI, language systems, I could use your face even after you're dead, and let's say you're famous, like let's say Tom Cruise, and then I could just keep putting your face on things and just keep using AI so you could have Mission Impossible 27 still with Tom Cruise age 30. Let's do that. And again, you can understand why the actors go, uh, hang on, no, that that's, doesn't work for us. But also another thing, which I think is less reasonable, is during COVID, 
walk-in auditions, you hear about these things about auditions, people queuing up, the actors this is, queuing up, coming into a room, somebody assesses you and then says, thank you, goodbye, which sounds horrible, by the way. It all turned online, so people had to record themselves in their own house, read the script, submit it, done. And now we're past COVID, the studios keep wanting to do that. Now, this is a classic example where unions want to be resistant to change because the argument is not everybody has this digital equipment. It's, it's discriminatory. It's like everybody has a phone. Everybody. And even if you are so poor that you do not have a phone, you've got a friend who does, who could then send it on Wi-Fi, maybe from a library Wi-Fi to you. And the argument I would make here is, first of all, everybody's got access. Let's not pretend they don't. And secondly, if I'm trying to see what you're like on screen, it's actually better if I see you on screen rather than in the flesh. Because you may be magnetic face to face, but look really flat through a cathode ray tube. So that's one where I suspect eventually the Actors Guild will actually back off on and like I say, I just feel obliged because these, these names are so, ugh, these abbreviations. The WGA is the Writers Guild of America, so that's all the writers. And then there's SAG-AFTRA, which Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. So this is stopping things like voiceover work on video games because that's included in this. It's also, there's... When the strike started, Deadpool 3 was happening. Now, a script was already in place, but A, the actors are members of the union, so can't act. But also, and I found this interesting, ad-libbing, which is, of course, one of the key things in Deadpool movies, that is also classified as writing, and so you can't do it. Who knew in these situations? But the thing that something like Netflix has up its sleeve is nowadays we are more willing to watch foreign stuff. And all of this is American. And yes, there are a lot of Brits and British writers, actors, etc. in America who are members of this union who can't work. But there are also lots of them who aren't members of those guilds and are members of the British equivalent of those guilds. And it's actually written into the contracts of these guilds, these unions, that you can't strike in sympathy. If you've got a legitimate strike and you want to strike in the UK, fine, but you don't have to. So again, right now, one of the few productions that's still running, because none of it's filmed in America, and basically none of the people involved are members of these guilds, is the House of Dragons series too. But I loved Severance. It was my favourite series of 2022. They stopped doing it because of the writer's strike. And all this stuff is sort of happening and affecting things moving forwards. I couldn't wait for the next series of Severance, but I'm definitely going to have to wait longer. Now, the last time they did this, perhaps the most famous one to be affected by this is Quantum of Solace, the second Daniel Craig James Bond movie. And basically, it stopped because of the writer's strike, of the then writer's strike, and then it got picked up pretty quickly, and the script wasn't properly finished, and they were basically changing the script as they were filming as they moved along. That is never a good idea, and Quantum of Solace is considered one of the messiest, probably the weakest Daniel Craig bonds, and certainly one of the weakest bonds overall. It's one of the few that was a direct sequel, because they had to pick up, because, again, writer's strike, so it shows you that sometimes, because they need to get more movies out, like I say, there's now a delay. 
and maybe it's resolved in time that people can pick up things like, let's say, Deadpool 3 or the community movie. Six seasons in a movie. God, I want that movie. But again, I'm going to have to wait in these situations. And again, I think these people need to be treated fairly. Writers are, I'm going to say, the most important people. They come up with the good ideas. And the actors also kind of bring it to life. The issue here is, when we talk about actors, is we tend to think of people like Tom Cruise, who has millions of dollars in the bank account. But this also affects everybody else. If it's shut down, that means the key grip, who doesn't earn a lot of money, isn't earning any money at the moment. And... Something like the stuntmen. They can't do anything at the moment. There's no stunts to perform. Have they got enough money in their bank accounts? So it this is affecting the little people as well. So yes, somebody like Tom Cruise can hold his breath for as long as it takes. But for a lot of the little people, how long till it's like, I need money. And I need money now to pay the bills because in the meantime, my rent is due. So this is the tension always with these strikes. And so it's to everybody's interest to eventually sit around the table and try and thrash out a deal. And it's usually the sign of a good deal if everybody's left a little bit, yeah, isn't quite what I wanted. In which case, fine, there's compromises happened. If you feel like you've got everything, that means the other side feels like they've lost everything and they will probably want revenge at some point. Not a good idea in business. So you can see all of this is swirling around to do with unionization, which sounds so boring, but has real world implications and has been affecting society properly for centuries, but technically for thousands of years. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode. And as oh, I'll say, as always, please don't forget, click subscribe. I don't anything anybody new has come onto this one to hear about unionization. Hey, if you're that one person, hope you enjoyed it. Well done, you. Click subscribe. I do lots of different ones. And I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. Would love to get your thoughts on this. And I hope you felt that I did it fairly from both sides to show that there are valid points of view on both sides. Going to leave it there. As always, another episode coming soon. Oh, well, I suppose if that's special you can do, Gem, we'll put that one out as a podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.